So after a moment's hesitation, Russell said in response to what if you found that God existed after all? He would say, well, I would go up to him and I would say, you didn't give us enough evidence. It seems to me Bertrand Russell's complaint is shared by millions of people down through the the, the centuries. Quite recently, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs um, uh, has told of how he developed a friendship with another Oxford philosopher, Sir Isaiah Berlin. And on their first meeting, Berlin said, Chief Rabbi, whatever you do, don't talk to me about religion. When it comes to God, I'm tone deaf. And... uh, uh, Dr. Sachs repeated that on a radio programme with uh, Richard Dawkins and Dawkins' response was well you see I don't think there's any music to hear. The, the Apostle John who wrote this Gospel this Gospel of John he was absolutely familiar with that kind of scepticism. It wasn't new then. And it certainly isn't new now. It's a complete misrepresentation of history to suggest that that there were sort of earlier periods which were naively religious and now we've become as sophisticates non-religious. Actually, in every era, for the last 2,000 years and more, the the, um, uh, true worshippers have been um, uh, looked down on by the cultured despisers of their culture and even um, are vehemently, fanatically opposed by others. Sometimes, actually, as with the new atheists today, those the despisers and the fanatical opponents are the same person. It has always been the case, and it was absolutely what was going on in John's day. And in, in a sense, John wrote his Gospel to answer Bertrand Russell's question. He intends to provide enough evidence. But interestingly, he doesn't bother with debates about the existence of God, but already by his days, those sorts of debates about whether God existed or not had been going on for a long time and had run into the sand. No, John sets out to provide evidence of a different kind. Not for the existence of God but for the godness of Jesus. John is actually saying, I think, three things in his Gospel that we uh, need to look at this evening to try and get ourselves orientated at this sort of position that we're at, about a third of the way through the Gospel before we move on. We need to step back and see what this whole message of John's Gospel is. John is going to say three things. John is first of all going to say Jesus is God. He said in a slightly more sophisticated way than that, but basically that's what he's saying. The second thing he's going to say is vitally important for the Bertrand Russells of this world. There is enough evidence for that. And the third thing he's going to say is that believing and trusting in that gives us eternal life. Jesus is God. There is enough evidence for it. Believing and trusting in that gives us eternal life. And I don't know whether you notice, but all three of those come together in John chapter 20 
verse 31. John's summary of his uh, gospel, his purpose in writing the gospel. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that that Jesus is, in some sense, God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's summary of what he's trying to say in his Gospel. But actually, that message is is intricately and fascinatingly woven through the whole Gospel. And I want, at um, what will be probably relatively breakneck pace, to try to show you that's, that's not just a little bit tagged on at the end. That is the warp and woof of how he structured his Gospel. The overall structure is um, very simple if you um, um, uh, like simplicity. It goes like this. The first 18 verses of the first chapter serve as a prologue. It has those, those amazingly portentous words that we, re- we uh, read at Christmas. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and so on. And it, it, it serves as a, um, as a prologue to the whole Gospel. Then there is a massive big set, set, uh, bit in the middle, which, um, in which, um, as I'll show you in a minute, John gives seven signs about Jesus. And then there is an, a little epilogue at the end, which is very much about the witness of, 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 of Jesus being passed on now to the disciples. But we need to look a little bit more detail uh, than that to try to... to uh, Get a, get a grasp of how he structures his gospel. Those seven signs are vitally important. We've seen some of them as we've been uh, studying John's gospel. The first one is Jesus turns water into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And, and John, to introduce the fact that he's going to give signs, notice in, in, in chapter 20, verse 30, he said Jesus performed many other signs to introduce the fact that these are to be signs, he specifically flags that up. This was the first sign that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and by this he displayed his glory, he says. Um, and then the signs keep coming. Uh, interestingly, the second one is round at Cana again, the same place, a little village in, uh, in Galilee. And he heals a dying boy in chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. And then the third sign comes hard on its heel, healing a crippled man, this time, interestingly, in Jerusalem. The fourth sign, which is as far as we've got in the Gospel in our detailed study, is feeding of the 5,000 in chapter uh, 6. I'll come back to that in a minute. Then, then, then the fifth one in chapter 9 is the healing of a blind man. And the sixth one, we've got a sixth one, there it is, is the raising of Lazarus, rising to this sort of, this crescendo of Lazarus who has been dead for three days, if you know the story. Jesus cries, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he raises him from the, from the dead. So, so there's been a sort of growing um, significance to these signs as uh, John's Gospel has gone on, gone on. Signs of Jesus' power and Jesus' authority, as well as actually his compassion and his love and 
and, and uh, as it moves towards healing a blind man, allowing a blind man from birth to see and then raising the dead, it's, it moves you towards this, this, this deep question, who is this man who raises people from the dead? John's answer is, he can only be, in some sense, God made man. It's only God raises the dead. But where's the seventh sign? I say where's the seventh sign because um, uh, uh, seven is a very significant number in, uh, 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 amongst the Jews and you will see in, a, in just a moment that there are lots of sevens all over the place in John's Gospel. And um, uh, um, most people agree that the seventh sign is actually what happens to Jesus at the end of his life as he dies on the cross and rises again. His death and resurrection is the great sign of who Jesus is. Interestingly, just to add a couple of uh, details, um, uh, I think we mentioned when we were in chapter 1, after the prologue, there is a little short section from chapter 1 verse 19 onwards, um, up to the first sign, the um, changing of water into wine at Cana, which is a week. Quite explicitly, John shows us that this is a week of activities that lead up to the first sign. Then, in chapter 12, verse 1, just after he's finished talking, uh, uh, John's finished telling us about the raising of Lazarus, he um, says then, it was six days... Um, so that's going to be a total of uh, a week until the Passover when Jesus died on the cross. And so there is a week anticipating the first sign and a week recorded carefully to anticipate the second sign, or the seventh sign, sorry. Just to add to that, though, John, John is extraordinary in the, uh, the number of other sevens that he places into his narrative. Here are some of the, um, the obvious ones. You will know if you've read John's Gospel, Jesus says again and again, I am the, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the, and the life. Interestingly, as I've picked out there, there are seven of them. Also, interestingly, he starts saying that after the fourth sign. The fourth sign is a sort of central, it's the central one of the seven signs. It's a pivotal, it's a pivotal sign. And from that moment on, we seem to move into a slightly new phase of, uh, uh, of Jesus' uh, ministry. And he starts, uh, one of the signs of that is he, he starts saying, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. There's something that is hidden in English translations, though, that is, that is even more um, uh, significant as John has uh, constructed his gospel. Jesus says, actually, I am without a the after it seven times. Um, that, that is particularly significant because of the Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, it is God who describes himself as 
I am. Interestingly, that uh, that absolute statement, I am, without a the after it, that absolute statement occurs seven times only in the Old Testament. And here's one of them, for instance, just to give you a flavour of what God is trying to communicate about himself uh, when he says that. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Um, um, uh, he says, You're my witnesses and my servant and my chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Those great I am statements in the Old Testament always are to to signal the uniqueness and sovereignty of God. At another point he says, I am, I will not give my glory to another. So when Jesus starts saying, I am, it's potentially really quite significant. Now, it's disguised, in fact, in part, by the fact that you could say that and it not have any deep significance at all. And uh, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman in, uh, in uh, John chapter 4, verse 26, and uh, debating with her, he says, I who speak to you am he, or I who speak to you, I am. And it could have been just that I'm the person you're talking about. It's not absolutely clear. Similarly, um, when he walks on the water in John chapter 6 and the the disciples are all afraid, Jesus says, do not be afraid, it is I. And that could have been just a normal way of saying it's me, don't worry. But it's in the context of him walking on the water. And any Old Testament student knew only God walks on the water. And then it starts getting stronger. I am he, he says in chapter 8, verse 24. I am he, verse 28. And then, as he is arguing with his detractors, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And clearly he is indicating there that he he, he is at least very old. And of course, in the fuller revelation of uh, John's Gospel, he is pointing to his, his being eternal. I am. Somehow, he is God. I am who I am, he says in chapter 13, verse 19. And then, just in case we've missed it, chapter 18, verses 5 and following is very significant. Jesus is here about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, the soldiers come out and um, uh, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. Verse 6 When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground, says John. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said, I told you that I am, he says. In other words, on this last and seventh occasion, John wants 
wants to make it absolutely plain this is an awesome thing. This is something that instinctively even Roman soldiers, hard-bitten Roman soldiers felt was, was something awesome and terrifying. Slowly, slowly, you see, as John's Gospel has gone on, these statements about himself that Jesus makes are clearer and clearer and clearer. In some sense, he is God. Now, we wrestled with this a little bit uh, earlier, so I won't, um, uh, I won't spend too much time on it. But uh, remember, perhaps from, be- from before Christmas, he, he is not saying that, that uh, when you've seen him, you've seen the totality of who God is. He is still, as he says, submitted to my Father. He still prays to God. But neither is he saying that somehow he is, he is just some creature, he is, he is, separate, is separate from God. Somehow he is, he, is, he, he is included in what it means to be God. So just as only God can say, I am in the Old Testament. Now Jesus says, I am. Scholars have have wrestled and uh, and, uh, been perplexed at how to to articulate that. It's the classic doctrine of the Trinity that we're, we're talking about. And it is not easy to articulate it well. But here we need to just... Rest on this simple truth. What could only be said about God in the Old Testament now can be said about Jesus. I said at the beginning, didn't I? John wants to persuade us of the godness of Jesus. Then the second thing that he says slightly more um, briefly there is, he's saying, there is sufficient evidence for this. For instance, the signs, seven in number, that we, we have already seen. That is, a sign, that, that, that is an indication of completeness. That he says, I could have recorded many other signs, but I've recorded these ones so that you will believe. Seven is enough for any person. It is a complete number. But those, those other sevens that just kept coming, I am the, and then the I am, is, is designed to give you a sense of completeness. This is a complete witness to who Jesus is. But there are others. There, there are various things that occur 14 times in the Gospel. Two times seven. The, the idea of doing miraculous signs get, gets mentioned 14 times in the Gospel. The, the, um, uh, the, 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 it's one word, in fact, the one who believes occurs 14 times. He's building, um, uh, in, in the way that he structured the Gospel, these key words coming up again and again and again, in fact, a complete number of times. And then, very interestingly, the word testimony comes up 14 times. 
testimony is um, um, uh, particularly significant because uh, as you go through uh, John's Gospel, you find again and again and again that the issue of whether Jesus' testimony or John the Baptist's testimony is sufficient gets discussed again and again and again. And, and as it gets discussed, the, the, um, uh, what John is telling us matures. And fascinatingly, um, if you look at the discussion between the seventh and the eighth instances of these words, testimony, you see a very interesting development. Let, let me show it to you. It's in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 36. The word testimony in these five verses occurs four times. We get the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth. In other words, we are bridging from a first set of seven to a second set of seven. And look at what he says at that point. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, this is something that, has been, that gets thrown at him more than once in the, in the Gospel. You need two witnesses in any Jewish court of law to have a valid testimony. So he's saying to start with, I I, I recognise just standing up here and saying, I am he, just saying I am in some sense God, that's not sufficient. But then he goes on. There is another who testifies in my favour. And I know that his testimony, seventh testimony that is, about me is true. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, eighth one, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose to enjoy his light for a time. Now here we are. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So, uh, he is moving in this pivotal um, point in the Gospel on this issue of testimony from discussing John's testimony, which he says is valid, but not sufficient, to actually another form of testimony, which he says is all that is necessary, his testimony backed up by his Father. And so you find, actually, in John's Gospel, that uh, uh, we move from, at the beginning, the testimony being from John the Baptist, or from the Scriptures, or from, uh, some people suggest, seven other witnesses, seven witnesses in total, to the only testimony that is needed, being the testimony that Jesus brings as he does the work of his father. Now that is massively important. Because you see, Bertrand Russell and his ilk say we haven't got enough evidence. And John is saying two things. First of all, he's saying in one sense you have got enough evidence. You've got John the Baptist, you've got the scriptures predicting about me, you've got got all sorts of things that point to me. You've got enough evidence. 
But he's saying, actually, even beyond that, you've got another form of evidence which in itself is sufficient. Just look at me. Just see what I'm doing. And just tell me that that's not sufficient to prove that I am. The debate about the existence of God, and, uh, which is run by the philosophers and so on, has been going on for thousands of years now, and it always runs into the sand. Pure logic always leaves a sort of uncertain outcome. Does God exist or not? Have we ever got enough evidence for Jesus and who he, uh, and what he did? Jesus cuts straight through that and says, you have. He said, for people who have a heart prepared to believe, you just look at me, you just see what I do, and you will find you can't not believe it. My testimony is sufficient. And that's why we um, don't spend an enormous amount of time trying to uh, bandy around uh, careful and clever philosophical discussions. They, they have their place. They have their value. It is very, very useful to show, particularly to the world, that it is entirely reasonable to believe in the existence of God and to believe in the historical Jesus. All of those things are of value. They never, ever convert anyone. But actually, reading about the real Jesus here, seeing what he does, seeing the extraordinary care and and, and, and craft with which people have sought to explain the real Jesus. Seeing Jesus through the pages of this book has converted millions. So we focus our time on trying to display Jesus. That's what this church's life is all about. That's what we're trying to do as we open the, open the scriptures week by week. That is what John tells us to do. His testimony, or more accurately, the testimony of Jesus, is sufficient. Some people say, well, all these sevens and so on and fourteens, are you sure you're not just uh, manufacturing them? I think my answer to that is, is, um, uh, would be in several parts. One is that many of those sets of sevens are, are obvious and indisputable. It's difficult to avoid them. Um, but another is that actually... The ancient world, the ancient authors were much more inclined to write in this way, constructing very clever narratives with, uh, uh, with, with things like this within them. Genesis chapter 1, for instance, is a prime example. If you uh, read Genesis chapter 1 
carefully, for instance, the, 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 the story of the creation, you find obviously there's seven days in that creation, but seven times it says God saw, seven times it says God made, ten times it says and God said, which is a significant number, fourteen times it says and it happened, and so on and so on. It is a carefully constructed narrative the story of creation. And it may be that John has some of that in mind as he does his whole gospel. Because in John chapter 1, John started with, in the beginning, God. Just as Genesis chapter 1 started. Some people even suggest that uh, the, the, the image of, Genesis, of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 is very much in John's mind at other points as well. Do you remember Mary mistakes um, Jesus for a gardener in John chapter 20 when he's risen from the dead? Where else in the Bible is there someone who has the profession of being a gardener? Adam? It's the only one that I know of. So some suggest that mistaking Jesus for a gardener is, is, is just a little hint of Jesus being like a new Adam, risen from the dead. Who knows? But there is little doubt that John is wanting to build by the constant repetition of these key phrases, these important messages. And the third thing he has to say very briefly is this. Believing and trusting this gives us life. The phrase eternal life, another one, comes out 14 times. And, and the, the putting together of believing and having life, again, comes to, it, it is found 14 times. And the last of those believings and having life is that Um, uh, verse that we looked at John chapter 20 verse 31 these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name how does believing in Jesus give us life? Well, at one level, by believing in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by embracing this, this new understanding of the world, we find freedom. We find freedom through the forgiveness that Jesus won on the cross. So that now there is no sin that stands against our name, because Jesus paid for all of our sins, um, uh, and uh, therefore there is no condemnation for us before God. We find life through believing in Jesus who rose from the dead and so that this life is not all there is. It is not terminated horribly by our death. But it will continue on in in resurrection life. We find life by having uh, something to believe in in this world, a coherent understanding of the world and a coherent explanation of what our life is all about. But actually the Bible says more profoundly than that, we find life because in the process of coming to trust and believe in Jesus, we 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 become united with him by the power of the Spirit, of his Spirit. So that actually his life 
in a sense, is infused into us and we discover the ability to change and to be a new person. Believing and trusting in Jesus changes us completely. It gives us life. And that is the message of John. Next week we will return to looking at individual uh, texts and seeing how they build that picture. But uh, uh, this week I just wanted to step back for a while and say, this is where we're going. Jesus is God. There's enough evidence. Simply the revelation of Jesus himself is evidence sufficient to believe that. And in believing that, you find life.